So last week we started this sermon series, What Did Jesus Do? Kind of playing off the old what WWJD, what would Jesus do? And, you know, we can always speculate what Jesus would do in the 21st century, but we don't have to speculate about what Jesus did do. What did he do when he lived his life on earth? So we're looking to the Gospels to learn and unpack some things that we can see that Jesus did as an example for how we should live our lives today in 2020. Last week we looked at the fact that Jesus invited people into God's kingdom. He reached out to those who saw themselves as failures, to those who were socially unclean, those who were broken and and so broken they couldn't even bring themselves to Jesus. They had to have friends bring them to Jesus. We looked at people who were unclean and despised and cut off from the community around them, those who were unwelcome because of their past sins and misdeeds and how Jesus reached out to all of them. Jesus came for all of those and loves all of those. And he invited those people into a relationship with him so that he could enable them to do the impossible, so he could cleanse them from their sin and sickness, so he could make them whole inside and out and welcome them into a loving community of Christ followers as sons and daughters of God. And that brings us to the second thing that Ben alluded to, that we want to look at today that Jesus did. Jesus reached out and invited, but he didn't stop there. He went on to invest in the lives of those people. He reached out to those far from God, brought them in so he could build them up into fullness and maturity in Christ Jesus. He poured himself into this growing group of disciples, invested his time, his attention, his love, his prayer, His compassion. Because Jesus didn't come just to save broken, despised, hurting, unwelcome, unclean individuals. Jesus came to build a community, a family of faith, made up of those formerly unwelcome and despised men and women. He was reaching those without, bringing them in to the body of Christ so they could continue His mission on the earth. So to help us discover what it means for Jesus to invest in God's people and what it looks like for us today to invest in each other, to invest in the church, I want us to look at another passage from Luke's Gospel. And in this text, we're going to see how Jesus invested in his 12 apostles, how he passed along his ministry and mission to them. And this account reminds us that Jesus is sending us on mission. This wasn't just a mission for the first century. This is a mission for the 21st century as well. Jesus is sending us and equipping us and empowering us with all we need to trust Him and to obey Him. And He sets an example for us as a church. We need to reach out, to bring people in, and to invest in their lives, to build them up through this shared life together as a church family. I want to pause right here just a minute and once again acknowledge uh, the the people who have invested themselves in this church and in me as well through my doctoral studies. This past week, I was so excited to finally get and have in hand my book. Uh, This is the the book that I had to write for my doctorate. And uh, I I bought a copy for each of you and expect you all to read it by next week. I'm just kidding. I did purchase a copy for the church, and this copy will be in the church library, should anybody so desire to read it. And uh, it tells the story of men and women, the saints of First Baptist Church, some of them, ones who have departed us recently, 
and all the time and the attention and the prayer and the thoughts they put into helping this church rediscover and reignite its passion to be a Great Commission church, to love God, to love people, and to make disciples of Jesus from all generations. So thank you once again, and this is going to be in the church library for you. And, uh, and if you want to know more about our church, this book will tell you a whole lot about our church. But let's look together uh, at Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Jesus had called the twelve together, gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Jesus has given us a pattern to follow as a church family. Just as Jesus invested in his disciples, he expects us to invest in one another as a church family so that together we can carry out that mission of loving God, loving people, and making disciples of Jesus from all generations. So what did Jesus do? What does he expect us to do? Well, the first thing we see is that Jesus gathered. Jesus gathered in the disciples. It says when Jesus had called the twelve together. Now, in the Greek, this called together is one word. It's synkaleo. And synkaleo means to summon, to call together. Uh, you know, our English word synchronize. You know, we get that from that, that prefix, sync, to sync. That means to bring together, to unite as one. And that word kaleo is the root word for the Greek word of the church. The church in the Greek is ekklesia. And ekklesia means those who have been called out together from the world. We are the called out and called together ones. And so Jesus gathered together this newly formed band of disciples for a very special purpose. They withdrew from a busy season of ministry for some intentional one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus where he would commission them and instruct them and prepare them for this next phase of their ministry together. Now, last week we read two stories about how Jesus called some of these 12 uh, original disciples to follow him. Remember Matthew? He called Matthew, and Matthew got up and left behind his life of greed and selfishness and dishonesty. He left behind his tax collection table to follow Jesus. Jesus went to Peter, Andrew, James, and John and called them, and they left behind their family business of fishing to follow Jesus. That's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who leaves behind their sin, who forsakes themselves to follow Jesus. And the things that we must leave behind to answer Christ's call to salvation are sin. We leave behind our sins. We turn from them. We repent of them. And we trust in Jesus to give us a clean heart, to give us a fresh start on a new path. And we live our lives following in His footsteps. Being a disciple, in many ways, is like being a, the apprentice to a master craftsman. You can imagine if you were trying to hone a craft and a skill, or maybe it was a you know, woodworking or painting or, or music, but there was some skill you wanted to, to learn from a master. And maybe you might quit your job and sell your home 
and pare things down and move your family to be near this guru, this master at the craft you want to learn. And you work with him and you watch him every day because you want to do what he does and you want to do it the way he does it. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ. We leave behind sin and self. Jesus calls it laying down our lives, dying to ourselves, being crucified with Christ, bearing our cross and following Him every day. And we want to watch what Jesus did. We want to see how Jesus did it. And we want to begin to live and serve like Him. Now, it's one thing for the original 12 disciples to do this, right? I mean, they could literally do that. They could eat, sleep, walk with Jesus. When Jesus got up, they got up. When Jesus stopped, they stopped. They were with him in the flesh every single day, watching and listening. But what about us? How do we, 2,000 years later, how do we follow Jesus? Say he's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. How can we apprentice with him? Well, Jesus has left us a few things to help us. He's left us the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's left us the written word. And he's left us the church, the body and bride of Christ. John 16, 13 through 14 says, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me, because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. The spirit of truth dwells within us as believers and develops the character of Christ within us. Paul calls these the fruit of the spirit. The more we allow the spirit to fill us and to transform us, the more we begin to do things the way Jesus did. But the spirit chooses to work hand in hand with the word of God, with the scripture. We need to hide God's Word in our heart to meditate on its truths, to allow it to pierce our souls like a sword and reveal to us the areas in our life that need to be corrected and rebuked. We need to turn to the Word of God for that instruction in the will and the way of God. But you know what? The Spirit of God chooses to use the Word of God in the context of the people of God. The Bible wasn't just written for individuals to read and study on their own. It was written to be shared in community so that we could hear the Word of God read on each other's lips, so that we could hear the Spirit speaking to us through the insights and perspectives and life experiences of other believers. As I said, Jesus didn't come just to call individuals to salvation, but a family, a community of faith. You heard in uh, our Old Testament reading a passage that Peter uses in the New Testament. From the book of Exodus, Peter says, a chosen race, that we the church are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we could proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. A few verses before that, Peter compares the church to a building. He says, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so just as Jesus did 2,000 years ago, He gathers together His people into a community of baptized believers who unite together for one purpose, and that is to glorify God by fulfilling His mission, the Great Commission, to make and teach disciples of all nations. 
And so the first thing we must do if we're to do what Jesus did and invest in others, we have to do what the writer of Hebrews implores us to do. When he says that we have to consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as are some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, I understand, probably as well as as anybody, the COVID world in which we live. And I understand we've roped off every other pew. And I understand that people have legitimate health concerns and reasons to not be here. But I also know there are people who are going to football games and they're sitting in restaurants and they're spending an hour or two, for some reason, at Walmart. If you can do that, you can worship in God's house. You can be here. And the fear that all pastors across this country have had from the beginning of this in March is that once we lock down and shut down our doors, and once we open up with limited seating capacity, and once we open that Pandora's box, which, which can be a blessing, don't get me wrong, of being online, how many people won't come back? How many people will find it so easy and convenient to worship from the comfort of their living room couch in their pajamas or at their kitchen counter with their coffee and cinnamon roll in hand. Because once you come back to church, there is no, David, can you pause for just a minute? I've got to go get more coffee, right? I mean, you can't, you can't do that in here. You can do that online. You can't do that in here. I understand that. I understand the appeal of that. But listen to what the author of Hebrews is telling us. Some are in the habit of neglecting the meeting together with God's people. There's a difference between having a a legitimate reason you can't be here and just having gotten out of the habit. And so I say, not with judgment, not with accusation, but with compassion in my heart to those who have found themselves out of habit, I implore you, make the effort to come back. We want to see you here. There are empty seats in this room right now for you. There's a fellowship hall, which, you know, it's not as comfortable as home. It's not as in-person as the sanctuary. But maybe for you it could be a, a halfway house, a stepping stone of sorts to come back into worship. We want to see you. We want you here. Your Sunday school class wants to see you. They need you to be here. Jesus gathered his disciples together. There's something about being together that virtual can never replace. And so we need to gather together. And in this particular instance, Jesus gathered them together for a very specific reason. He he gathered them together for focused teaching, worship, and prayer. He gathered them together for rest. Many times we see Jesus gathering the disciples together for those things. But here, he gathers them together to give them what they need. That's the second thing we see that Jesus did. Jesus gave what was needed. We see that. He says he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. That's the first thing he did was equip them for the mission. He gave them power and authority. Now let's look at those two gifts. The first one we see mentioned here is power. The Greek word there is dynamis. It's where we get the word dynamite. Okay, it's explosive power. It means might, strength, the ability to accomplish a task. The same word is used in Acts 1.8 in that version of the Great Commission where Jesus said that when you receive the Holy Spirit, He will give you power to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
That same word. He gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do the things He has commissioned us to do. And in fact, in that great commission in Matthew 28, so in Acts 1.8, He talks about the power. But in Matthew 28, He talks about this next word, this next gift He gives us. He promised that through His presence with us, which is also by the Holy Spirit, we not only would have power, but we would have His authority. He gives us authority. Now, the Greek word there is excusia. And that means the right, the capability to make choices and judgments. It's the idea of an official ruling power, a jurisdiction. You think about like the authority of a judge, the authority of a ruling official. That's the kind of authority that he promises us. The idea is that Jesus not only gives us the ability to make disciples, he gives us the right the official capacity to be His hands, His feet, His mouth. We represent Him on earth the way a a United States ambassador would represent the president overseas. And in fact, that's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God Himself were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ... Be reconciled to God. We have the authority. God will speak through us to call people to be reconciled to Him. And listen, just as Jesus gave these twelve that power and that authority, He gives us that same power and that same authority. How do I know that? Because the Great Commission wasn't just to those twelve. The Great Commission was to all believers of Christ through all of time. We go not on our own authority... We go not in our own power, but under Jesus' authority because He has commissioned us and under Jesus' power because He indwells us. So we should never be intimidated to be His witnesses. We should never feel as if we can't serve in His name because we've been given the very power and authority of Christ to be His witness and to make disciples. It's not about our ability. It's about His ability at work through us. Now, how do we become so equipped and empowered today? Again, it's one thing to have Jesus literally standing in front of you, bestowing upon you His power and authority. But what about us, 2,000 years removed? Well, it's just like I said earlier. We are equipped and empowered by the Spirit of God, working through the Word of God in the context of the people of God. And I'm going to back that up one more time with these three verses. Philippians 4.19 tells us that our God will supply all of our needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. And it's the Holy Spirit in us that gives us access to all of that equipping, all of those riches, all of that glory. It is through the Spirit of God that Christ meets our needs. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. For what end? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You will be thoroughly equipped for whatever work the Spirit of God gives you through the Word of God. It is wholly sufficient to equip us. And then this last verse, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers, for what? To equip His people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attending to the, whole, the wholeness of the fullness of Christ. That is why it is so critical for us to be students of God's Word and members of His church. We need each other. 
Because it is through our presence in each other's lives, through doing life together. It is through our prayers for one another, our instructing and encouraging one another with God's Word. That is how we are thoroughly equipped for every good work, for every good work of service that enables us all to be built up in unity, in faith, in knowledge, in maturity, unto the fullness of Christ. It is the Spirit of God using the Word of God in the context of the people of God. Jesus gathered together, Jesus gave what was needed. And you cannot be a fully functioning disciple of Jesus Christ. You cannot be attaining to the fullness of maturity in Christ. You cannot be equipped thoroughly for every good work if you're not involved in a local church. Because that's how God has set it up. He didn't call any Lone Ranger Christians. He called us to a team to work together. And it is in the context of that team that Jesus gives us everything we need. The third thing we see Jesus then do is he commissioned in verse 2. It says that he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, I believe that this specific mission for the twelve, to cast out demons, to cure diseases and heal the sick, that was a unique charge to these men in the early days of the church. Now, I'm not saying that miracles, healings, and casting out demons, I'm not saying those don't happen today. They most certainly do. But when we read the Great Commission to the church, whether that's in, you know, Acts or Mark or Matthew, when we read that Great Commission, nowhere does it say that that's a part of our commission, to heal the sick or to cast out demons. Rather, the focus is on preaching the gospel and making disciples. That is our commission. And while Luke says that Jesus gave them power and authority to heal and cast out demons, he also says that's not the purpose of their mission. The purpose of their mission was to preach the kingdom of God. In Mark's account, it says that it was to preach repentance of sin. The healings and casting out of demons were their credentials. That was how they could prove that they were coming in the power and authority of Jesus. Because Jesus was actively at work doing those things. We read in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, He appointed twelve that they might be with Him and that He might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Now, that account in Mark emphasizes the reason Jesus sent them out was to preach. The authority to cast out demons was an aid to accomplishing the purpose of preaching. Because Jesus knew that Satan and his demons would oppose this message. And he knew that they needed a sign to accompany that message again so that they would know that they did represent Jesus. But the point was to preach the message of repentance because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And that is our mission as well, church. Our mission is to proclaim the gospel. And Jesus has given us some things to accompany That message, compassionate service, passing along Jesus' peace and love to others. Jesus says in John chapter 13, the way that they will know that we are His disciples is by how we love each other. It is our love for one another. That is the sign that should accompany our message, that we are genuinely ambassadors of Christ. And Jesus calls us to share the gospel with people in word and deed. He calls us to meet people's spiritual and physical needs, which is what he was doing through them, healing the sick, casting out demons. He was meeting physical and spiritual needs. We can do that too. And that is best accomplished together 
as a church. We can demonstrate God's coming kingdom in simple yet profound and powerful ways. We can give and pray for missionaries through the International Mission Board, which we'll be emphasizing in a few weeks through the Lonnie Moon Christmas offering. We can pray and give to the Georgia Baptist Mission Board, to Honduras Outreach, or to Smoky Mountain Resort Ministries. And when we're able, we can go on mission and serve. Packing Operation Christmas Child shoeboxes, participating in the drive through nativity are ways we can invest ourselves in this church's mission to make disciples of all nations. And I just want to say one quick word about drive through nativity. This year, I believe God is giving us a very unique opportunity. Everything that I'm seeing Christmas-related is being canceled this year. There's no parade. There's no Christmas at Cedar Rock. There's no drive through uh, or hayride through the life of Christ. All of Christmas concerts and cantatas are being canceled left and right. Don't you think that people will be clamoring for an opportunity to do something Christmas-related this year? And our drive through nativity is ready-made for social distancing because they stay in their cars. And we're outside, spaced out from each other. And we're going to make other accommodations so we can do it safely. But you know what we can't accommodate for? It takes you. You online, you on the radio, it takes you saying, I will be a part. And if you won't be a part, we can't do it. I joked at Corley Church Conference tonight that we might have to put Ben in a sheep costume and stick him out there in the field. And there was a motion and a second to that. So, I, you know, people wanted to see that, but... Yeah, be like, sign up, please sign up. But we need you. Please be prayerful and, and step out in faith and be a part of our drive through nativity because I believe God will use that to spread the message of hope in a year where people desperately need hope. Let's be a part of that together. We can do so many other things to invest in this mission. As Jesus' representatives, we are sharing his peace with those to whom we proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. And if you remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus said that when we act as agents of peace, we show ourselves to be children of God. Jesus gathered and gave, he commissioned, and Jesus commanded. We see that in verses 3 through 5, that Jesus gives these instructions. And when you read those instructions, it's like, man, those are some pretty severe restrictions. Why is Jesus making this harder than it already is? The point of these instructions was to help the twelve to eliminate any unnecessary encumbrances. Jesus wanted them to do what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12.1, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Jesus knew they were going out on a marathon. They needed to carry as little as possible. Paul says something similar using a military analogy. In 2 Timothy, he said, Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life, for then they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. We can't proclaim God's kingdom to those lost in the dominion of darkness if we are so consumed and distracted by the things of this world that we fail to trust in God and that we fail to pursue His kingdom and His righteousness. We must focus on God's mission, on His kingdom and trust that he will provide for us all the other things that we need as well. In Luke chapter 9, a few verses later on in this chapter, Jesus is calling people to follow him, and they don't because they're too concerned with the minutia of life. And Jesus tells them in verse 60, let the dead bury their own dead. And he says, let no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back 
they're not fit for service in the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is that if we're going to follow Him, our primary concern must be the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Jesus is emphasizing that our mission is urgent. It's critical. It's timely. It's about saving lives, not just for now, but for eternity. And so he's saying, don't get sidetracked. Don't get weighed down with the details of life. You remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that God knows we need food and clothing and shelter. And if we focus on pursuing His kingdom first and His righteousness, Jesus said, all those things will be added to you as well. If we focus our lives on this commission Jesus has given us, He says, God will handle the details. Later in Luke chapter 22... Jesus asked the disciples, remembering back to this moment, He said, when I sent you without purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? What did they say? Nothing. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. They lacked nothing. We can trust that Jesus will supply our needs. And one way He does that, again, is through the church. It's through each other. Just as Jesus gave instructions and promised God's provision to them, so we as a church can teach, encourage, equip, and support one another in life and in ministry. This happened in the early church. They took Jesus' principles, these teachings, to heart. And they modeled it. In Acts twenty two forty four, it says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. The early church was so peculiar in that age. It, it, people were intrigued by it because they were taking care of each other's needs. It didn't matter whether they were Jew or Roman or Greek. It didn't matter whether they had been slaves or masters. It didn't matter if they were men or women, rich or poor. It didn't matter. They took care of each other's needs. The early church understood what it was, to, what it meant to invest in the family of God, to follow Jesus' example. They understood that God's kingdom and God's mission was relational. Now, we've talked about table fellowship lately, this idea of Middle Eastern hospitality. To be a guest in a home, to eat at someone's table, was to be treated like family. If somebody was under your roof, it was a solemn responsibility for you to take care of them and protect them. God would hold you responsible for their well-being. That's the idea behind Hebrews 13 too that warns us to not forget to entertain strangers for by so doing some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Put simply, we must depend on God and anticipate His provision at least in part through the hospitality and support of other people. It's relational. It's about community. That's what the early church modeled. That's what Paul meant when he wrote in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. God gives us the resources to meet needs. The needs that He brings to our attention, that He puts in front of us. And we need to be willing to be equipped so we can serve and proclaim the gospel and to be agents of His peace together. When Jesus sent them out without bag and purse, He wasn't doing that because He expected God to miraculously provide for them. He did that so they would have to depend upon the hospitality of others. Are you, first of all, are you willing to depend upon the hospitality of others? 
Sometimes some of us have a hard time receiving help, don't we? We, some of us can be very private and we don't want to ask for help and we don't want to let people know we have needs. But to be a part of a church that's investing in people means you've got to let people invest in you. And secondly, are you willing to give of your time, of your resources, of your emotional energy? Are you willing to invest in children and young people and adults and young married families? Are you willing to invest in the lives of others for the sake of the kingdom of God? These disciples were. And the last thing I want to say is not what Jesus did, but what these disciples did. We see that in verse 6. They trusted, they obeyed, and they rejoiced. When we seek to carry out God's mission faithfully, prayerfully, relationally, we will experience joy, just as these disciples did. Now, we may not see immediate results from our investment, Sometimes it takes years to see that. But you know what I found? I found that simply being faithful to God, being obedient to Him, and serving in ways He has called me to serve, that is its own reward. And you rejoice and you are blessed in so many ways. And we can trust that God's Word and God's work will never return void. When we are faithful, God will make us fruitful in His time. And that always brings pure joy. Just as these twelve went out to preach to evangelize, to meet physical and spiritual needs. They were doing what Jesus had already done in their lives and in front of them. Jesus has been modeling this for them the whole time. And now he sends them out to bind up the wounded, to restore to wholeness the broken, to bring in the unwelcomed and despised, to encourage those who consider themselves to be failures. What about you? Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? He wants you to know His joy in fullness. But you have to have a relationship with Him. We're here today right now proclaiming the good news of God's grace to you. Jesus wants to forgive you of all of your sins. He wants to give you life eternal and life abundant. He wants you to live life to the fullest here and now as well if you will just receive His free gift of love today. And then once you do that, once you are invited in and you answer that invitation from Jesus with a yes, then he calls you to invest. Invest in the lives of others. Invest in the life and the ministries of your church. Are you answering that call? Are you answering God's call to go and tell, to make disciples of all generations? Are you investing yourself and the youth and children and other people in this church? Listen, these young people, and even young married people, they need godly men and women to invest in their lives. They need people who have been there, who have experienced those ups and downs, to love them and and to invest in them and to model for them what it means to be husbands and wives and moms and dads who know and fear the Lord. Are you investing yourself in a small group? of believers who are encouraging each other and praying for each other and meeting each other's needs and serving together? Are you investing through going, through giving, through praying, through telling others the good news of Jesus Christ? I pray that whatever God is speaking to your heart right now, whatever conviction that you're feeling in your spirit, that you would be obedient to that, that you would trust Jesus Obey Him and experience His joy. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank You so much 
for Jesus' total investment. He gave His life for us. And He calls us to do the same. He calls us to lay down our lives, to take up our cross daily and follow Him. He calls us to lay down our lives for one another, to put each other's needs before our own. Forgive us for when we become so self-centered, we get so caught up in the busyness and the, and the hecticness and the minutia of life that we forget that we are living for more than ourselves. We are living for your kingdom and your glory. And God, if there's anybody here that does not know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they belong to you and that their destiny is secure in Christ, I pray they would come now to entrust their hearts and their lives to you. In Jesus' holy name we pray.